New York, this is Democracy Now! These missiles can follow multiple targets, accept commands when they are launched, and change their target along the way. Thousands of U.S. Marines and sailors have been deployed to the Middle East in an effort to deter Iran from seizing oil tankers in what The Washington Post calls a remarkable escalation in tensions between the two countries. Iran's responded by equipping its navy with drones and missiles. We'll speak with the Quincy Institute's Trita Parsi, who asks, with Marines on Persian Gulf vessels, is Biden risking war with Iran? Then an update on the U.S. response to asylum seekers starting at the southern border in Texas, where state troopers are reportedly separating migrant families, to New York City, where there are growing calls for long-term shelter for immigrants as the city claims it's run out of room. It's kind of another slap in the face to our you know, historical New Yorkers who've been here and our most recent arrivals who are just seeking a little bit of help in this moment. We need to actually stop doubling and tripling down on broken systems like our emergency shelter system and actually invest in getting people out of emergency shelter and into permanent housing. Then the Iraqi men suing U.S. military contractor Khaki for torture they endured at Abu Ghraib prison may finally get their day in court. We'll speak with their lawyer and hear from one of the men, an Al Jazeera reporter, about what they endured. One of these methods was that you were kept naked, handcuffed, the hood on your head. Then they would bring a big dog. You hear the panting and barking of the dog very close to your face. This is one of the methods of torture and interrogation that they conducted. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. West African leaders are planning to hold an emergency summit Thursday to discuss Niger following last week's military coup. ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states, had threatened to use military force if Niger's military leaders did not step down by Sunday. But there has been deep division within ECOWAS over how to respond after the deadline was ignored. The Senate in Nigeria has come out against the use of force, even though Nigeria is the largest and most powerful nation in ECOWAS. On Monday, the United States announced it was freezing about $100 million in aid to Niger, where the U.S. maintains a major drone base. Meanwhile, acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Nuland traveled to Niger, where she met with some leaders of the coup who rejected her calls to step down. Nuland was denied a chance to meet with Niger's ousted President Mahatma. Meanwhile, Mali and Burkina Faso have sent delegations to Niger to reaffirm support for Niger's new rulers. All three nations are former French colonies where anti-colonial sentiment has soared in recent years. This is a spokesperson from the government in Mali. I would like to remind you that Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger have been dealing for over 10 years with the negative socioeconomic, security, political and humanitarian consequences of NATO's hazardous adventure in Libya. Of course, we ask ourselves, if it took us 10 years, how many years would it take us to get over another adventure of the same nature in Niger? We don't know. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. 
One thing is certain. President Goita and President Traore have clearly said no, no, and no. We will not accept military intervention in Niger. They are coming for our survival. In Ukraine, at least seven people have died in the eastern city of Pokrovsk in a pair of Russian missile strikes on an apartment block in a hotel regularly used by journalists covering the war. The first strike hit at 7.15 p.m. Monday. A second strike came 40 minutes later, hitting first responders who'd raced to the scene of the initial strike. According to Ukrainian officials, 31 people were wounded, including 19 police officers and five rescuers. In other news from Ukraine, authorities have detained a woman accused of plotting to assassinate Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The woman has not been identified. Voters in Ohio are heading to the polls today for a special election to decide whether to make it harder to amend Ohio's state constitution by raising the threshold from a simple majority to 60 percent of the vote. Republicans in Ohio introduced the ballot measure just months before voters will decide in November whether to enshrine abortion rights in Ohio's constitution. The Republican mega-donor Richard Uline of Illinois, a key backer of anti-abortion groups has bankrolled the Republican effort by giving $4 million to the group Protect Our Constitution. Former Minneapolis police officer Tutau has been sentenced to nearly five years in prison on state charges for his role in the police murder of George Floyd in May 2020. Tao held the crowd back while Officer Derek Chauvin pinned George Floyd to the ground with a knee on his neck for over nine minutes. Tao is already serving a 42-month federal prison sentence for violating Floyd's federal civil rights. Donald Trump has suffered another legal setback. A federal judge has dismissed a defamation countersuit filed by the former president against E. Jean Carroll. In May, a jury ordered Trump to pay Carroll $5 million after it found him liable for sexually abusing her at a department store in the 1990s. More than a million homes and businesses lost power Monday as a deadly storm lashed the eastern U.S. from Alabama to New York. At least two people died. Meanwhile, CNN's reporting recent heat waves in the southwest killed at least 147 people in five counties in Arizona, Nevada and Texas. Experts believe the actual death toll is far higher. In Baytown, Texas, one couple who'd been married for 52 years died after their air conditioning broke and they couldn't afford to fix it. Extreme weather fueled by the climate crisis continues to devastate communities across the globe. In Slovenia, floods have killed at least six people in what the country's prime minister has described as Slovenia's worst natural disaster. In South Korea, authorities are racing to evacuate nearly 40,000 young people attending the World Scout Jamboree due to an approaching typhoon and extreme heat. The leaders of eight South American nations and thousands of indigenous activists are gathering in the Brazilian city of Belém for a major summit on protecting the Amazon rainforest. Brazil's Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Marina Silva, spoke ahead of the gathering on Monday. As we had this 14-year hiatus without a call from the summit, we arrived at it with clarity. The first point is that the Amazon is drastically threatened. The second is that we cannot allow it to enter the point of no return. The third is that it is impossible to reverse this process by working in isolation. Many indigenous leaders plan to attend the Amazon summit. This is Chief Rauni of the Kayapo people. 
If we continue to deforest, we will continue to have problems, not only for indigenous people, but also for all people. We must preserve it so our grandchildren and children can live well, sleep well, eat well, and be happy like us. We, the indigenous peoples, are feeling the climate change. Many rivers are drying up. We are feeling very hot, and the village temperature is very high. The forests are dry. The rivers are drying up because there is a lot of heat and little rain. And this is perceived in the villages, in the indigenous communities. In northern India, more than 300 Muslim homes and businesses have been demolished since Thursday as part of a crackdown led by the ruling Hindu BJP government. On Monday, a court ordered a halt to the demolitions while asking if it was part of an exercise at ethnic cleansing by the state. Al Jazeera reports more than 150 Muslims have also been arrested in what some have described as a campaign of collective punishment following an outbreak of clashes between Hindu and Muslim groups. Britain's begun housing asylum seekers on a large barge off its southern coast in an effort to save money over housing migrants in hotels. This comes despite numerous protests and warnings. Last week, the firefighters union said the barge was a potential death trap due to a lack of fire exits. There are also reports that the barge has no life jackets. Meanwhile, here in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams has announced a plan to house as many as 2,000 migrants at a tent complex on Randall's Island in the East River. We'll have more on that story later in the broadcast. President Biden's visiting Arizona today, where he's set to formally preserve a million acres of land near the Grand Canyon as a new national monument. Environmentalists and Native communities have long pushed for the land to be protected. The move is intended to permanently block uranium mining in the area. In Chicago, police have charged a 43-year-old man with first-degree murder after intentionally shooting a 9-year-old girl in the head while she was riding her scooter. Eyewitnesses said the shooter was upset that the girls, Sarabi Medina, and other kids were making too much noise in front of his home. The gunman, who's been identified as Michael Goodman, is expected in court today. This marks the second time gun violence has shattered the Medina family. In 2018, Sarabi Medina's mother was fatally shot in the head. Police in Montgomery, Alabama, have issued four arrest warrants after a group of white boaters attacked a black dock worker who told them to move their illegally parked boat. Cell phone video showed the brawl escalated when a group of men came to defend the dock worker. A 16-year-old who was dubbed Black Aquaman on TikTok, where the video first went viral, was seen swimming across the river to aid the dock worker. And in labor news, over 11,000 city workers in Los Angeles have begun a one-day strike, their first since 1980. The striking workers, including gardeners, custodians, and lifeguards, are represented by SEIU Local 721. Los Angeles has seen a wave of labor organizing this summer. Hollywood writers have been on strike since May, and actors have been on strike since July 14th. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
The Biden administration has deployed thousands of U.S. Marines and sailors in the Middle East in order to deter Iran from seizing oil tankers and other commercial ships near the Strait of Hormuz. U.S. forces arrived Sunday and could be stationed on interested ships in what The Washington Post called a remarkable escalation of tensions between the two nations. The move comes after the Navy said Iran tried to seize two commercial oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman last month and reportedly opened fire on one of the tankers. The U.S. said Iran also seized two merchant ships in May and dozens more since 2019. The U.S. Naval Forces Central Command called Iran's actions a, quote, threat to maritime security and the global economy. This is what White House spokesperson John Kirby said on Iran on CNN. We have seen a real increase now uh, in their attempted attacks or, in some cases, sadly, successful attacks on maritime shipping in and around the Strait of Hormuz, whether it's outside the Gulf or just inside the Gulf. Uh, and this is activity that we've seen spike from the Iranians before, certainly spiking now. And we're sending a strong message, not just to Iran, but to our allies and partners, that we take this seriously, because so much, uh, particularly oil, so much of that flows through the Strait of Hormuz. That's a, that's a choke point uh, for the Middle East that has has global trade implications. We got to make sure that we can defend our interests and the interests of our allies and partners. That's what these deployments, that's what they're all about. Meanwhile, Iran has said the ships it detained committed various violations and that at least one ship had issued a distress signal that it was responding to. On Saturday, Iran said it has now equipped its Revolutionary Guards Navy with drones and missiles. This is Iran's Navy commander speaking on state TV. These missiles can follow multiple targets, accept commands when they are launched, and change their target along the way. For more, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, author of several books, including Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. His current column uh, for Responsible Statecraft is headlined, With Marines on Persian Gulf Vessels, Is Biden Risking War with Iran? Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Trita. Well, maybe you can answer that question for us. Lay out what led to what the U.S. is doing and how Iran is responding and what you're so concerned about. Well, this is extremely concerning, and there's a reason why the Washington Post characterized this latest potential move by the Biden administration as a remarkable escalation. Uh, it is because it is a remarkable escalation, and that does risk uh, leading the two countries into war. The Iranians taking some of these ships in the Gulf of Oman and the Persian Gulf is without a doubt a problem uh, that needs to be addressed. But the root of this problem is that the Biden administration has continued Trump's maximum pressure strategy on Iran and has been confiscating uh, vessels with Iranian oil, uh, saying that this is the implementation of U.S. sanctions. But U.S. sanctions and U.S. laws do not apply to international waters. And as a result, uh, the, the maritime security of the Persian Gulf has been threatened by these actions and by the response of the Iranians. If we truly want this to end, the easiest way is to stop confiscating the Iranian oil. And that way, uh, uh, there will be no reason for the Iranians to do what they have been doing. And they have not been doing this unless there has been any measures by the U.S. Uh, in this direction. But by putting these uh, Marines on commercial vessels, this has not happened 
since uh, the previous century during the world wars, and that was during wartime. So that is a, a reason as to why the Washington Post is characterizing this as a remarkable escalation. The Washington Post also reports other recent steps to deter Iran include the deployment of advanced F-35 jets, along with other fighter aircraft and an A-10 attack jets to the Persian Gulf region. Your response? Yeah, what we're seeing here, which is uh, quite concerning, is that despite all of the promises that there would be uh, lesser uh, U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf and in the Middle East, bringing the troops home. We're now seeing the Biden administration moving more troops into the region, uh, betting on deterrence rather than actually a de-escalation of the situation. And part of the reason why the administration is doing this is because of its key priority in the Middle East right now, which is to get Saudi Arabia to normalize relations with Israel. In order to do so, the Saudis have asked for a defense pact with the United States, something that Biden so far has been reluctant to offer, because it would mean that the United States would have to sacrifice its servicemen and women for the defense of the Saudi uh, dictatorship. But in order to meet them halfway, it appears that the administration is calculating that by moving more troops to the region, by demonstrating that it is willing to go into conflict with Iran, that that will uh, um, uh, make the Saudis more comfortable uh, that the United States will come to their defense, even in the absence of an official security pact. And the question we have to ask ourselves, all of this for what? Because getting the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel at a time when the Israelis have the most extremist government in their entire history, the annexation of Palestinian territory, the impossibility of actually making peace between Israel and Palestinians because of the policies of the Israeli government currently, uh, to have that normalization take place in that context it would be an American endorsement of what the Israeli government currently is doing in terms of undermining any prospect for peace. So it's really uh, baffling to see why we're taking such immense risks uh, that could bring the U.S. into war for achieving things that are of little value when it comes to peace and stability in the region or U.S. interest in the region. Trita Parsi, you also have the potential for the Iranians to use a water drone to take out a tanker, the significance of American soldiers potentially drifting into Iranian waters, what all this could mean? Yes, one uh, scenario that I'm not sure the White House has taken fully into account is Instead of the Iranians going after some of these commercial vessels in the manner that they have done so far, they may use a drone to take out the engine and then let the ship drift into uh, uh, Iranian waters. At that point, you would have 20 or so U.S. Marines in Iranian waters. The Iranians would confiscate those ships, probably deter uh, the American soldiers. And that would be probably the biggest crisis that the Biden administration has faced. You know, this did happen by accident in 2016 when some American sailors accidentally veered into uh, Iranian waters because of navigation and engine problems. That was resolved in 16 hours because the JCPA was in place, because the Obama administration had established uh, a good channel of communication with the Iranians. Uh, and as a result, most Americans don't even know about this because it was re resolved so quickly. Biden has done none of this. And as a result, if this scenario were to take place, it would lead to a major crisis and a potential uh, point of uh, military confrontation between the two countries. You write, 
It is impressive how MBS, Mohammed bin Sultan, the head of uh, the head of Saudi Arabia, essentially, it is impressive how MBS has played Biden. Explain. Well, if you take a look at what's happening during the Biden administration, Biden came in promising that he's going to turn, show the world uh, the pariah that Saudi Arabia is, that he's going to take a tougher stance, that he's going to end the war in Yemen. Many, many different promises that were made. But instead, we've seen the uh, MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, play tough ball with the, the Biden administration, uh, raise oil prices at a moment that was really crucial to uh, the U.S. for prices to go down, push back really hard, make a deal with the Iranians through the Chinese. All of these different measures and all we've seen from the Biden administration is to uh, pursue a softer and softer approach towards uh, Saudi Arabia, including now even considering some form of a security uh, arrangement with the Saudis in return for this normalization. It seems to me that this obsession of getting a Saudi-Israeli normalization, which again has questionable value, uh, is the leading star of the administration. And as a result, they're willing to go to great lengths and great concessions to Saudi Arabia in order to achieve this. And it's not even clear whether MBS is really going to go for it at the end of the day. They just dangling of that opportunity is getting him massive concessions from the U.S. side. We're coming up on the first anniversary of the protest for justice from Asamini, the young Kurdish Iranian woman who was uh, who died at the hands of the um, so-called morality police. Uh, her death sparking massive protests, uh, not only in Iran, but around the world. Do you think U.S. antagonism towards Iran will actually embolden Iranian leaders to be more violent, impressive, as we understand they are preparing for a new crackdown on the people. I think in the larger context, greater tensions between the United States and Iran have been to the detriment of the pro-democracy movement uh, in Iran. Uh, their ability to be able to pursue the changes that they are seeking is all the more difficult when there's high tensions between the two countries. But in this specific instance, in the short tactical term, uh, I doubt that the impact is going to be particularly significant. The, the government there has been extremely brutal in its clampdown of protesters. Um, and uh, even though I think that there's a likelihood that there will be uh, new protests taking place on the anniversary, because the anger of the population is still there, there's been nothing that has really systematically changed in the country in terms of addressing some of the root causes of this. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the repression is likely going to be very intense. And if you take a look at this over the longer term, what we have seen is that when countries are under the type of uh, broad-based economic sanctions that Iran is under and countries like Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Zimbabwe and others have been under, the long-term effect is that the governments tend to become far more repressive than they were before. Because in order to keep control and stay in power and, and control the anger of the population, they resort to more and more repression. And the instances in which we have, in which these type of broad-based sanctions eventually lead to democratization are essentially very few. There's only one example. It's South Africa. In all other cases, these type of broad-based sanctions have actually led to a situation in which the population is more repressed because the government becomes more repressive, more aggressive, including more aggressive on the foreign policy arena as well. Uh, we just have 30 seconds, Trita, but what do you think should happen now as Biden makes this move? I mean, he was Obama's vice president, but do you think his policy on Iran, despite what he said leading up to the election, is more like Trump's? 
Well, in certain aspects, you know, he is continuing the maximum pressure strategy. I think the administration did try diplomacy with Iran in negotiations, and uh, and certainly the Iranians have created a massive amount of problems in that process. But I think there was a key mistake the administration did in the beginning, which was it didn't go back into the agreement right away through an executive order, as it did, for instance, with the Paris Agreement, with WTO. Instead, it chose a negotiated path, and it used the Trump sanctions as leverage for that. And I think that has been a critical mistake that has led to several uh, consequences, uh, including the ones that we're seeing right now. Trita Parsi, I want to thank you for being with us. Executive Vice President, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We'll link to your column with Marines on Persian Gulf vessels. Is Biden risking war with Iran? Next up, an update on the U.S. response to asylum seekers from the southern border in Texas, where state troopers are separating migrant families to New York City. Stay with us. Rock by the Iranian-American musician Maral. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Texas, where the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, is escalating his crackdown on asylum seekers at the southern border. The Houston Chronicle reports Texas troopers recently changed their policy and are now separating migrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border under Abbott's Operation Lone Star. At least two dozen families have been separated. The policy has been widely condemned by immigrant rights advocates for its abuses. Attorneys with Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid say most of the separated families separating the mother and children from the fathers are from Venezuela and plan to turn themselves in to U.S. border officials to request asylum. Instead, state troopers with the Texas Department of Public Safety arrest the fathers on trespassing charges. Other family members, including their young children, were separately detained by Border Patrol. The practice violates the Abbott administration's own border enforcement guidelines. Advocates are calling on the Biden administration to intervene and immediately reunite the families. The campaign, hashtag Welcome with Dignity, said in a statement, quote, the world can now see that Governor Abbott's cruelty knows no bounds, unquote. Just last month, Biden's Justice Department sued Governor Abbott after Texas installed barrels wrapped in razor wire in the Rio Grande to block asylum seekers from crossing the river. Dozens of migrants, including children, have suffered severe injuries and lacerations after being cut by razor wire. Last week, the body of two asylum seekers were found in the Rio Grande, one of them trapped in the razor wire barrier.
The first reported deaths linked to the buoys include a victim identified as a 20-year-old from Honduras. Meanwhile, the blistering heat wave in Texas has also been deadly for migrants crossing through the region, with a whistleblower recently revealing Texas border officials were ordered to deny migrants drinking water, even in the brutal heat. For more, we go to El Paso, Texas, where we're joined by Marisa Limon Garza, executive director of Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, though not under these circumstances, Marisa. Can you describe what you understand is happening at the border? People might say they thought under Trump they understood the separation policy, still dealing with perhaps a thousand families that have never been reunited. But it's continuing to happen? Indeed, it does seem like it's continuing to happen here at our southern border. We believe in the safety and well-being of all people, and that's an understanding uh, that is shared by many Americans. And we know, we all know, including Governor Abbott, the incredible harms and lifelong damage that is caused by this kind of separation. We know what happens to children, the psychological damage to adults as well. And it's not surprising, unfortunately, that he has continued to ratchet up the response in many measures to gain political points. And so we see this separation occurring. We see the harms that it causes. And it's incredibly difficult to continue to have that happen here at our southern border. When you pair that with the horrors of this buoy system and everything that we're seeing in Eagle Pass with razor wire and the lacerations on people and the harm that that causes, it just goes back to a tired trope that people continue to try to pursue, which is a deterrence practice through cruelty. And this cruelty continues to be augmented and built upon in horrific ways that we know are just not uh, effective. People are on the move across the globe. This has not deterred migrants from coming. If anything, these practices put people into more harm's way when they're just trying to seek asylum, you know, their legal right. And so it's horrific to see, and we call on the Biden administration to continue their efforts to make sure that Governor Abbott stops this practice, that Operation Lone Star is ended, and that we can no longer have the, the separation of families on our watch. It's unconscionable, and it goes against all of our values. And Marissa, can you explain further? They're arresting the men on trespassing charges? Yes, the trespassing charges is the tool that the governor is using with Operation Lone Star to be able to put the men. That's one of the very few uh, access points that they have as a way of legally operating uh, through the Department of Public Safety. And so this mechanism results in uh, separation of families. And those families are, are actually supposed to be all presented together to Border Patrol officials and not have the separation occur. And so there's certainly some kind of breakdown between Border Patrol and DPS in what's actually happening at the southern border. This has caused the communities in Eagle Pass to respond in different ways. There's been reporting recently about um, different people in the community, landowners and others, having real issue with these practices. And the city council actually had privatized a park, and now that's become public again because there wasn't a real understanding of the great lengths that the, the Abbott government would go to to make sure that there was harm placed on migrants. 
So I want to go to this issue of the razor wire. You're in El Paso, and I want to ask you about the response in the border city of Eagle Pass, Texas, where residents gathered Monday night along the Rio Grande to commemorate asylum seekers who've drowned in the river. This is Jesse Fuentes, who is pursuing a lawsuit against Texas over new river barriers covered in razor wire they installed and their environmental impact. He spoke to the Dallas Morning News. I don't know what it's going to take to get our park back, to get our river back, to let our river heal. That is a destroyed island. It'll make a comeback if we just remove everything that's there. We got to let the river heal. We got to let our community heal. And we need to remove all these impediments out of the river. That's a federally protected river. None of that stuff should be there. And this is the Mexican president, AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, speaking last week, condemning Texas Governor Greg Abbott's immigration policy. Their nationalities are being investigated. The people found at the Rio Grande River. As of yesterday, and action is going to be taken. We already are demanding the removal of these buoys, which violate our sovereignty and our human rights. He, the Texas governor, Gregory Wayne Abbott, shouldn't act like that Texas migrant policy. It's inhumane. You don't treat any person like that. No one should be treated like that. That's not something good people do. So what is happening on this front, Marisa Limon Garza? Um, is there any move to remove the razor wire? I know the federal government is saying they're taking action. What exactly are they doing? The federal government has, uh, through the Department of Justice, is seeking you know, litigation against the Abbott administration to remove these barriers and to make sure that this is not happening um, here at the southern border. We here in El Paso know very well what kind of a scar militarization is on our regions. And that extends from San Diego all the way to Brownsville. This is a reality that we face every day when we see concertina wire at our ports of entry. We see border wall construction, steel bollard fencing. We see drones overhead, checkpoints out of the region. And it's no wonder that uh, Eagle Pass is suffering these grave harms with this horrific new iteration of a way to increase militarization on pieces of land, environment that have been protected and have been really enjoyed by flora fauna for, for millennia. And so to see these kinds of atrocities uh, really flies in the face of everything that we believe in and, and value in. And so it's time for that federal government to take more of an active response, continue to per push for more action to make sure this practice ends. And so there can be an attempt at healing both from the environment as well as from communities. I know members of Congress will be visiting uh, the southern border this week. And so we call on them to really take action and to push the administration forward on ending these horrific practices. Now, your organization, along with 200 civil, human rights and immigrant rights organizations, have written to the Biden administration, which has been using the decrease in migrant crossings between uh, ports of entry as an example of the asylum policy working. What are you calling for in this letter? We are calling for an end to these practices. We know that the decrease in numbers is not really an actual representation of what is happening, and it cannot be attributed to this new policy. We know that the policy, uh, people take time to see what kind of impact it's going to have. 
And the reality is that people are continuing to be on the move. We're calling for an end to the use of all of these uh, detractions that are getting in the way of people being able to seek protection and making sure that people have access to, to territory, that they should be able to seek uh, protection with them. We join uh, many other organizations across the country in, uh, in unison, really calling for an end to these practices, especially all of the things that are related to the circumvention of lawful pathways, the policy that the Biden administration has put into place, and really against the use of um, the credible fear interview and expedited removal that's caused incredible damage and an erosion of due process for anybody trying to seek protection while in the custody of border officials. Finally, Marissa Limon Garza, the issue of the desperate heat uh, and what migrants face, if not the razor wire, the deadly heat. The heat is horrific. You know, today, uh, yesterday in El Paso, I believe we reached up to 112 degrees. We've had the longest streak of over 100 degree temperatures in our region. And the reality is that migration doesn't stop. And so there are limited resources for people. It's caused grave harm and danger, ultimately resulting in death in many instances. And it's a, a reality of migration that shouldn't be part of what happens. A lot of the deterrence through cruelty practices push people to more dangerous and remote parts of our border. And that results in increased loss of life and damage and um, harm when it comes to heat-related illnesses and other problems. So it's another element that's only ratcheting up the other consequences that we have when it comes to these kinds of practices and these kind of deterrents. And the issue of uh, border guard not only um, not providing water, but sometimes taking water that humanitarians leave for people who might be seeking refuge. Yes, I mean, it's, it's devastating. There are calls throughout the community uh, for people to be able, just regular folks, to be able to have access to, to water. We have cooling stations in our community intentionally so that people can cool off. And yet those kinds of protections don't extend, it seems, to migrants, which is uh, inhumane and, and horrific. And so to hear that families intentionally, knowingly, are being uh, left without any kind of water a basic human right um, is devastating. And so that's something that we're certainly uh, against and in favor of a real humanitarian response, uh, which is what the response to migration should be, first and foremost, is recognizing that, that common humanity and what we all feel uh, as we're going through this scorching summer as a result of the climate crisis. Marisa Limon Garza, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Executive Director of Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, speaking to us from El Paso, Texas. We now go from El Paso to here in New York City. Mayor Eric Adams has announced a plan to house as many as 2,000 asylum seekers at a tent complex on Randall's Island in the East River. As his administration claims the city surpassed its housing limit to shelter the tens of thousands of asylum seekers who've been sent to New York since last year, many by Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Newly arrived migrants have repeatedly been forced to sleep in the streets, including last week when dozens waited outside Manhattan's Roosevelt Hotel 
for days, sleeping shoulder to shoulder on the sidewalk in hopes for a bed and shelter. Others have been stuck in the city shelter system for months as New York officials have failed to provide asylum seekers with permanent housing. Meanwhile, migrants who apply for asylum have to wait 150 days, five months, to file for a work permit leaving them few options to make a stable living while they wait. For more, we're joined here in New York by Murad Awalda, executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition and NYIC Action. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Murad, talk about the situation today um, where um, the mayor, the Democratic mayor, Eric Adams, uh, faces a deadline to tell the state, uh, tell the New York governor uh, what New York City needs. Well, first, thank you for having me with you today. Um, I think one piece of uh, information I'd love to share is that New York, New York City, New York State has welcomed immigrants and refugees for centuries. Um, this time is no different. We have been welcoming folks from across the world. And this past year, we've seen an increase of folks coming from the southern border. And through that, we've also seen uh, our systems not actually working here in the city. We're a city of 9 million people. We're a city that has long had uh, an incredible impact across the spectrum of um, contributions from various communities, specifically within um, you know, immigrant communities helping build our skyscrapers, our bridges. Um, and every piece of uh, New York City and New York State has the immigrant imprint in it. Um, Last week, what we saw on the news across uh, the globe at this point is um, asylum seekers sleeping outside of the Roosevelt Hotel, which has been converted into an immigrant uh, welcome center. And those images were gut-wrenching. How can we in a city of New York continue to have a broken system, um, a broken shelter system that continues to have people uh, dehumanized in this way? Um, as well as last week, there was a court hearing where um, the city and legal aid, who's the monitor for the shelter system, uh, went into court. And the, the it was a closed door session, but pretty much it sounded like when they got out, um, the city needed to make its request to the state on what other supports that they needed for shelter, um, because in the state constitution, it also puts it on the state. But this doesn't erase the fact that we've been dealing with the increase of folks coming for a past year, and we've just been doubling and tripling down on broken policies and, and broken systems that don't work and never have worked. So for us, we've been asking for people to be supported to get out of shelter and into permanent housing, and that continues to be our ta top ask in this moment. Mayor Adams has asked uh, to suspend a decades-old right-to-shelter order that requires New York City to provide shelter to anyone who asks for it. Talk about the significance of this, Murad. Right-to-shelter is actually a decade, as you mentioned, a decades-old policy that actually allows for regardless of who you are, to be able to get a shelter bed. Um, historically, uh, there was a lot of tension within um, the services that were being provided decades ago where it, single men were not allowed to get shelter. Um, and the court found that that was inhumane and illegal. So the, since then, right to shelter has been the uh, not just a court decree, but it's a law. We have numerous policies at the state level, at the local level, where we pretty much have codified 
in a number of different ways. It's a very complicated uh, policy, but it's incredibly strong. Um, so you can't just gut it because you don't want to fix the system that's broken. You have to actually fix it. And the best way of fixing it is actually cutting the red tape and the barriers from people who are unhoused being able to get the support that they need to get out of shelter and into permanent housing, which seems to be a big uh you know, issue for this mayor who doesn't want to do that. So Mayor Adams is actually uh, saying he wants to send flyers to the U.S.-Mexico border, telling asylum seekers not to come to New York. And then we know, of course, the governors are sending asylum seekers to New York. Some don't even know exactly what's happening or where they're going. Yeah, I think that we need to really invest uh, whatever resources we have right now into staffing up our city's workforce. Um, and not these these other stunts of like hiring outreach workers at the southern border to deter people from coming to New York, because New York has historically been seen as where you can achieve your American dream. And that's why many, many immigrants, including my family, have come to New York and why the city and the state's population, over a quarter of the state's population are uh, immigrants. And that's why they continue to come to the state regardless of what folks are, are are saying, because this is where if you can make it in New York, you know, you can make it anywhere. And that's that's the dream that folks are trying to strive for. And in this situation, people just need a little bit of help. What we're seeing is that adult um, asylum seekers and migrants who are coming here are not actually staying in the system very long. They're staying about on average between 30 and 45 days. What we're seeing that's actually more distressing is the migrant families and recent arrival families that are actually um, going to be stuck in the shelter system even longer than historically unhoused families. And our historically unhoused families stay in the shelter system for years um, before they're ever offered any real support to get out into permanent housing. So we want to flip this on its head and actually support people to get out as quickly as possible. Murata where are the asylum seekers coming from? Not all are from Latin America, but within Latin America, where and where from elsewhere? We're seeing a lot of folks, I think the vast majority of people who've come over the past year are Venezuelan. And what we've seen also with regard to Venezuela is that uh, the government has collapsed in a number of different ways, right? And we in the U.S. are not seeing the highest migration of Venezuelans here. If you look around in surrounding countries, about six or seven million Venezuelans left Venezuela, and the vast majority of them are in South and Central America as refugees in these in their neighboring countries. So we're just seeing a small population of Venezuelans coming up um, and global. Mig- there's an increase in global migration across the board. So this isn't unique to the U.S. This is happening everywhere. And we actually have to create policies that move us into um, being more welcoming and continuing to actually give people refuge and safety. But the vast majority of Um, The asylum seekers are Latino with a great deal of folks coming from Venezuela, some folks coming from Peru, Colombia, um, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Ecuador. Um, But then we also have a large contingent of folks coming from uh, Africa, right? We have folks coming from Senegal, Mali, Mauritania, uh, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, Uh, We have folks coming from Haiti. We have folks coming from everywhere. Which also, by the way, goes to issues beyond immigration. For example, uh, when it comes to Venezuela, the strangling sanctions the U.S. has imposed against the Venezuelan government. Yeah, or just foreign policy in general and how our foreign policy is impacting 
are uh, the migration movement on a on a global scale, right? It's not just what's happening there. It's also historically the U.S. interventionist policy in these other countries as well that has moved people um, to seek safety and refuge here. And the climate crisis. Absolutely. So finally, are other cities looking to New York as an example of how to deal with asylum seekers? I think that, um, unfortunately, right now, what we're seeing is that other cities are actually busing people to New York as well, um, instead of trying to find how they can support our new rivals, right? But if folks want to come to New York, we're here to support them. Um, I think that we have to, this need, this is not just a New York issue. We're seeing uh, folks coming from everywhere, going to different cities. So I think that there is a model here that we can be uplifting. And I think LA actually has the better model of how to support recent arrivals and ensuring that they're getting the support and housing as well as the services that they need, where it's a real partnership from every level of government down to the community-based organizations, really stepping up to actually meet the moment together. Murata Wadawan, thank you for being with us, Executive Director of the New York Immigration Coalition. Next up, Iraqi men suing the U.S. military contractor Khaki for torture they endured at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Stay with us. Keeps you running, never seems to die. Trail spent with fear, not enough living on the outside. Never seem to get far enough, staying in between the lines. Hold on, what you can, waiting for the end, not knowing when. May the wind take your troubles away. May the wind take your troubles away. Windfall by Sunvolt. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show with a federal lawsuit brought by Iraqi torture survivors that appears to finally be heading to trial after a federal judge refused to dismiss the case. The Center for Constitutional Rights and four Iraqi men are suing the U.S. military contractor Khaki, which was hired to provide interrogation services at Abu Ghraib, the Iraqi prison where the men were tortured by U.S. guards. The lawsuit was first filed in 2008, 15 years ago. Since then, Khaki has attempted 18 times to have the case dismissed. This is one of the plaintiffs in the case, Salah al-Ajayli, speaking on Democracy Now! almost a decade ago, talking about what he endured at Abu Ghraib in November of 2003. He was working as a journalist for Al Jazeera, had traveled to Iraq's Diyala province to report on the U.S. invasion. It was there that U.S. soldiers detained him. He said when he asked what he was being taken in for, their response was, you know the reason. He was ultimately transferred to Abu Ghraib. When I spoke to him a decade later, he was in Doha, Qatar. I asked him about his time in captivity. 
يعني أنا طيلة فترة بقائي في الزنزانات الإنفرادية كان هنالك تحقيق يجرى كل يوم. Throughout my detainment in the solitary cells, there were an interrogation every two or three days. During these interrogations, we were subjected to many psychological and physical torture methods. One of these methods was that you were kept naked, handcuffed, the hood on your head. Then they would bring a big dog. You hear the panting and barking of the dog very close to your face. This is one of the methods of torture and interrogation that they conducted. There are many other similar cases. How long were you held like this? يعني قضايا التحقيق كانت التحقيق التي كانت تحدث كل يومين أو ثلاثة أيام يستمر التحقيق لساعة ساعة ونص. These interrogations that happened every two or three days would last for an hour, an hour and a half or two hours in this manner. The details of the interrogations were different. In some cases they would bring dogs, then start the interrogation. In other cases they'd put you in a place and throw cold water or hot tea on you, then start the interrogation. But of course all the interrogations were conducted. Conducted while you were kept naked and hooded, and they'd ask you questions to which you answer. I stayed for 40 days in a solitary cell, and 70% of that time I was kept naked. That's Salah Hassan of Al Jazeera, also known as Salah Al Ajaili. Well, for more, we're joined by Bahar Azmi. He is legal director for the Center for Constitutional Rights, representing the Abu Ghraib plaintiffs in the case. Um, Bahar, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain the significance of the judge once again saying no, the lawsuit will not be thrown out, as Kaki has attempted 18 times to do it. Thanks, Amy, for continuing to pay attention to this uh, now epic struggle by our clients to get justice, um, some measure of justice. Um, yeah, what the court held here and has held repeatedly is that um, the plaintiffs here, our clients, have presented sufficient evidence that they were subject to torture at Abu Ghraib and that there was a connection between the military police, um, some of which were featured on the pictures that we've all uh, come to be horrified by. There was a connection between the military police um, and khaki interrogators sent from headquarters in the United States, um, insofar as those interrogators, the khaki interrogators, were ordering the military police, who were acting as guards, to, quote, soften up uh, detainees in the night shift uh, at Abu Ghraib, where there was, as military commanders found investigating the war crimes at Abu Ghraib, a command vacuum. So the, the, the court has found that there was sufficient evidence of torture, sufficient evidence connecting um, the torture to khaki interrogators and domestic headquarters, um, and has cleared away any, I think, remaining obstacles to this case finally going to trial and our clients speaking openly in court. So talk about your clients. Start with Salah, who we just saw, who we interviewed like 10 years ago. Where is he today? What happened to him and the others? Yeah, so we, rep we represent, um, in this case, four uh, detainees. We had prior cases representing nearly 200 individuals that was thrown out by a D.C. federal appellate panel and a, um, uh, in the majority was Kavanaugh and then dissent was Garland. We brought another case on behalf of 71 Iraqi citizens against a translation company. That's the Al-Karashi case that, that settled favorably. And this case is on behalf of... Uh, now three, regrettably, one of the four plaintiffs was dismissed 
uh, individuals who were in the hard site at Abu Ghraib. This is against Khaki specifically. Um, and all three uh, plaintiffs were swept up uh, in the chaos after the occupation, uh, ultimately found their way to Abu Ghraib and suffered the range of uh, uh, tactics, interrogation tactics and violence tactics that cumulatively amounted to torture. So sleep deprivation, uh, forced nudity, sexual humiliation, temperature uh, manipulation, uh, and outright beatings. Um, and uh, Salah in particular has found his way to Sweden with his family, now has residence there. Um, they're all suffering the after effects, psychological and physical, of their time in Abu Ghraib uh, 20 years hence. Um, but Salah uh, and the others are really seriously looking forward to appearing in a U.S. court and telling um, a jury and the American public about what happened to them. Can you talk about the email sent by a khaki employee? Uh, the judge in the case, um, uh, uh, Lani Brinkema, has said this could really be a smoking gun. The khaki employee writing an email to his boss outlining uh, what he'd witnessed, apparently resigning in protest, the judge said. Brinkema said she was amazed that no one at Khaki um, seemed to follow up on the employee's concerns. Khaki lawyers have disputed that the email, which is not publicly available, is incriminating. Um, talk about what Khaki is, uh, how it was involved, and what their argument is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Khaki now, which is a, 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 a huge, continues to have huge contracts with the United States government um, around surveillance and technology and, and border technology at the time, was hired to provide interrogation services um, uh, under contract with the U.S. government uh, and sent over um, highly unqualified but comparatively senior private contractors that took command um, of the military police um, and ordered these um, uh, kinds of uh, abuses to extract, to soften up the detainees and extract um, interrogate, uh, uh, intelligence. Um, so the question in recent years as a result of Supreme Court rulings is, to what extent is um, corporate domestic conduct uh, related or perpetuating what happened abroad for purposes of, you know, this jurisdictional question. Um, and Judge Brinkema in a prior hearing did single out an email um, going back and forth between the on the ground at Abu Ghraib and headquarters, uh, pointing out the seriousness of um, interrogator conduct there, uh, sounding the alarm to headquarters, uh, which uh, we say the headquarters largely ignored and covered up. Uh, and continue to deny to this day. Bahar, I wanted to show an image, and for radio listeners, they can go to democracynow.org, of the plaintiff we heard, Salah, uh, Salah al-Jali, al uh, Salah Hassan, hooded in Abu Ghraib with his vomit at his feet. Where did this photo come from? Uh, this came from the discovery process in the, in the case. Um, there are not many photos that, you know, specifically identify our plaintiffs, but this is one of them. And as you see, uh, he's prostate suffering, hooded, bound um, in the in the uh, um, humiliating physical and psychological 
set of techniques that were so prevalent in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib um, and that he and the other plaintiffs had to endure. Well, we were going to continue to follow this, as we have for these years, a case that is now moving forward after 15 years. Bahar Azmi, legal director for the Center for Constitutional Rights, representing the Abu Ghraib plaintiffs in this case against Khaki. For two decades, he's been part of a team challenging the U.S. government over the rights of Guantanamo prisoners, discriminatory policing practices, government surveillance, and the rights of asylum seekers and accountability for victims of torture, and representing the these Abu Ghraib prisoners as well. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.